This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Carol Van Dam, and here's what's coming up. Maternal mortality is an outcome for which globally we see very substantial inequities, so between richer countries and poorer countries and for subgroups within countries. That's Jenny Cresswell, a scientist and epidemiologist at WHO and author of a report on maternal deaths. Also, there's concerns about attacks on media as Nigeria's national elections draw near. And tomorrow marks a grim anniversary, the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. One year ago tomorrow, Russia has invaded Ukraine. The bloody conflict has played out on international television, raising questions about whether it might spread and what Russian President Vladimir Putin's long-term strategy is. We're joined in the studio here with Ukraine's managing editor of VOA, Tatyana Vazhrozhka. Tatiana, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You know, tens of thousands of men and women and children have been killed in Ukraine, and humanitarian groups also say hunger in Africa, which has affected millions of people this past year, was exacerbated by this war. Are ships with grain and fertilizer from Ukraine finally now getting out, and are some of them headed to Africa? Uh, Right. Uh, Just yesterday, President of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, in his uh, daily address said that uh, Ukraine has been participating in the grain initiative for seven months. Since then, uh, 22 million tons of Ukrainian grain uh, was delivered to 43 countries, including many African countries. But what we have been seeing recently is that this process has slowed down. Uh, we know that there, there are more than 100, uh, 150 ships are in line because they have to go through the inspection. It's a joint inspection with participation of Russian representatives. Uh, it's, uh, it takes about 28 days to go through um, through, through this inspection and so the ships can be moved to their destination. Ukrainian authorities and U.S. authorities are blaming Russia for that, saying that they're doing this intentionally to slow down the ship deliveries. At the same time, we know that the export of uh, wheat from Russia has increased. Uh, obviously, Russia denies that, uh, but even even while it's slowing down, the wheat is still moving, uh, grain is still moving. So, it's uh, Ukraine has been able to deliver and sell these sell these grains, and we have to remember that a lot of the harvesting, a lot of the field work is done in a very very difficult, life threatening conditions, and farmers are being shot at. There are mines in the fields. Uh, sometimes they have to wear a bulletproof uh, vest, and they're working in the fields. So, it's it's done, and it's it's not it's not that easy for Ukraine to deliver this this grade to the world. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in speeches to people in countries around the world and in private talks with top officials from Western nations like the U.S. has pleaded for more weapons and other military support. And he's raised awareness about Russia's military aggression. Is he getting through to the people, do you think? Uh, obviously, he does. Uh, of course, uh, Ukrainians would sell, and as many as many experts tell us, that Russia can be stopped by the overwhelming military force. Uh, so, and Ukraine still has a so-called, you know, don't have enough ammunition, they don't have enough weapons to to go onto a counteroffensive. That's all true, but. 
probably what we see in a war, in the terms of response to the war in Ukraine is exceeding expectations. Like President Biden said, that the war in Ukraine was a test for humanity, and we passed the test. And we see that the 44 countries right now are participating in the so-called in the Ukraine Defense Counter Group, so-called Rammstein. There were nine meetings, so they are coordinating the del- delivery of different weapons support system to Ukraine. Uh, we see every news that, you know, this country sent tanks, this country sent air defense. Air defense is much better in Ukraine. We remember the first days then you know, when bombs were falling. Now Ukraine, in effect, has its sky closed in a, in a big effect. So Russian planes, they don't risk flying over Ukrainian territories because uh, 90% of, uh, you know, rockets or any, you know, anything in the air is getting shot by air, Ukrainian air defenses. It's, that's good. People are even returning uh, to Ukraine because because they count on that. So we see the military system maybe not enough, but it's it's moving. We see very strong sanctions regime. There are more more sanctions on Russia than on any other country in the world, including mm-hmm. Iran. Uh, we see uh, a lot of financial assistance, mm. uh, and we also see how Ukrainian refugees, uh, how how then the borders were open. I mean, obviously, Ukraine has a, a visa-free regime with European countries. It was still incredibly difficult. I know on the first day of the war, I talked to people who were moving from the border, the refugees, they were standing in lines for 11 hours, you know, the kilometers long lines with children, with old people, sick people. It was all very difficult, but the borders in effect were open. Like right. the, whole, the whole process of going through the border was taking minutes. You right, know? right. So, and uh, European Union, the European Union, um, you know, responded to this refugee crisis by they adopted the internal uh, internal uh, resolution uh, that allowed Ukrainian refugees find jobs in those countries, have educations, have uh, legal status, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, med- and access to medicine. So, the Ukrainians are very grateful for how how the refugees were received, mostly no, over ninety percent women and children. So people have talked, though, uh, while that is, you know, good news considering what they're going through, people have talked about this Ukraine fatigue in this country and other countries. Um, are Ukrainians worried about that so-called fatigue and that it'll, it'll dry up political and financial support to their country? I would say yes and no. Uh, on the no side is, uh, you know, like one of the Ukrainian politicians said, you don't even have to talk about us. So a lot of those uh, tools have been are working, regardless of whatever has been discussed or not, like sanctions. If sanctions in Introduced, they're working. If we have those uh, Ukraine Defense Counter Group meeting regularly. They they work. They 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 uh, exchange information. They come up with solution regardless of whatever we talk in the mm-hmm. media or not. So uh, on the on the other side, uh, and the Ukrainians also understand that there are other crises in the world. You know, there was a horrible earthquake in Turkey, in Syria, over 44,000 people dead. It's a huge number, and they're grieving this Turkey with Turkish people with Syrian people. They understand that they, it doesn't matter. It's very difficult for them. But they're not, you know, they're not the center of universe. On the other mm-hmm. side, they do. They are concerned because, um, you know, it's politicians are guided by uh, by their by their constituencies, and if its constituencies do not support assistance to Ukraine, then it becomes very difficult. So yeah. yes. they understand politicians. <laughs> Thank you, Tatiana Boroshko. She is the managing editor for VOA's Ukraine service. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation, goes to the polls Saturday to elect a new president amid worsening insecurity and economic struggles. Tensions over shortages of cash and fuel could also influence how people vote. Timothy Obiezi reports from Abuja, Nigeria. 
Nigeria's most contested presidential election in 24 years is near. And with a record 93.4 million Nigerians registered to vote, including more than 10 million new voters, mostly young people, observers say the dynamics of this race may be different than any election before. It's 55 years old. They predict Peter Obi will benefit most from the new voters. Experts say he's a formidable third party force in a country where presidential elections have traditionally been a contest between the two main parties. Abuja resident Jason Ongwe says Obi is the best man for the job. This man has um, what I call a clean slate. He said, if you have any accusation, bring it up. Let me see. And till today, nine months ago, he said that till today, nobody has brought any accusation. So yeah, that's why I am voting for Peter Obi. Obi promises economic reforms and prudent government spending, but he's competing against the established giants of Nigeria's politics. Bola Ahmed Tinubu of the ruling APC party, known as a political kingmaker, promises he will fight insecurity and continue the policies of outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari. There's also the major opposition People's Democratic Party candidate, Atiku Abubakar, who's a former vice president. His supporters say his experience makes him the best choice. Nigeria has been struggling to control widespread insecurity and prevent its economy from nosediving. But experts say those are not the only factors influencing votes this time. Idayat Hassan is a director at the Center for Democracy and Development. The combination of the first scarcity for an oil-producing nation like Nigeria and the scarcity of Naira is now redefined the whole electoral system, is redefined even how people were likely to vote and what we expect to see on election day in a closely contested election where little things will actually matter. Nigeria's central bank is implementing a currency reform that has led to scarcity of hard cash. Many of the candidates have called for the CBN to extend its deadline on the currency transition, but the central bank, backed by the president, has refused. Aliyu Abdullahi is an Abuja resident who says he has struggled to deal with the cash policy. <laughs> Just about three days ago, chaos about this cash issue led to violence in my area, and two people were killed. This bruise on my nose was from that day. In the run-up to the vote, however, election workers have come under attack in several areas. As millions head to the polls, there is concern about possible violence. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. A new report by four leading U.N. agencies and the World Bank estimates every two minutes one woman dies during pregnancy or childbirth, most from preventable causes. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. 
The agencies say the alarming data they have collected should be a wake-up call for world leaders to take action to end the inadequate health care and widening social and economic inequities behind these unacceptable deaths. They say pregnancy and childbirth should be a time of joy. It should not be a death sentence. The report tracks maternal deaths between 2000 to 2020. It finds an estimated 287,000 women around the world died from a maternal cause in 2020. That is equivalent to 800 deaths a day, or one death every two minutes. Jenny Cresswell is a scientist and epidemiologist at WHO and author of the report. She says nearly all these maternal deaths are due to preventable causes. Maternal mortality is an outcome for which globally we see very substantial inequities, so between richer countries and poor countries and for subgroups within countries, depending on um, characteristics and access to care. This raises important concerns around access to high quality, respectful care and sexual and reproductive rights and women's autonomy. The report says some significant progress in reducing maternal deaths was made between 2000 and 2015. However, it notes this is largely stalled and in some cases been reversed. For example, between 2016 and 2020, data show two regions, Australia and New Zealand and Central and Southern Asia, reduced maternal deaths significantly. The picture is quite different in sub-Saharan Africa, which has the highest rate of maternal mortality, accounting for 70% of maternal deaths worldwide. WHO Assistant Director General for Universal Health Coverage, Anshu Banerjee, says for every woman that dies, 15 to 30 women suffer disability related to complications caused by pregnancy and childbirth. Nearly half of all pregnancies are unintended, which is highlighting the lack of access of some 270 million women globally to modern family planning methods, meaning they are unable to choose how and when to plan their families. Many lack access to safe abortion, which increases risk of complications, including deaths associated with unsafe procedures. The leading causes of maternal deaths include severe bleeding, high blood pressure, pregnancy-related infections, complications from unsafe abortion, and underlying conditions such as HIV, AIDS, and malaria. UN health officials say these conditions are largely preventable and treatable for women who have access to high-quality and respectful health care. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You're listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, go to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite radio and TV shows and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. This is VOA's African News Tonight, and we're joined in the studio now by Tesfra Drar. He is founder of Salam Foods, a company that grows and sells grain teff in the United States. Mr. Drar, originally from Eritrea, missed eating foods made from teff, a grain that is native to the Horn of Africa, when he moved to the United States in 1981. And he brought some seeds from home and began growing those grains in the northern state of Minnesota. Welcome, Tesfa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So it seems you're not the only one who enjoys eating teff here in the United States. How many states are growing teff and and linked with your company, Salam Foods? How many companies? Yeah, how many no how many states are you now growing the oh, grain yeah. in? Yeah, I'm growing it in about six states so far. 
That's quite a few. Is it mostly in the Midwest, like Minnesota? Yeah, from South Dakota to Kansas to Oregon, uh, California, Nevada, Idaho, and the state of Washington. Oh, so you're spreading westward from yeah, the yeah. Midwest. The, the reason I spread it is because uh, uh, the weather condition, the growing tough could be risky because uh, rain, if rain on it during harvest time, uh, the rain can ruin the, the tough. So I have about uh, 6,000 acres around those six states. So some of them are really affected by rain. So that's why I spread them out. And are you um, starting to export even back to Africa with your grain? Yes, yes. So far we are exporting to uh, Angola and to European market like Germany, UK, and uh, France, and to Israel as well. But right now, uh, uh, of course, Canada. Canada is our neighbor. <laughs> but here in the U.S., we have a lot of customers uh, addicted to TEF. And I'm I'm curious about your farms. Do you employ a lot of other uh, you know Africans in the diaspora? Well, no. Now I don't have African uh, employee. Uh, what I do, you know, the local Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't own the ground, the farm. I, see. I lease it. I lease it from a landlord. So, but I employ. Uh, I hire the farmers themselves with their equipment. Uh, I train them for a couple of years. Then, uh, yeah, there are about two hundred fifty people serving Salam foods. What w is the nutritional value of teff? I've seen what it looks like, but I have no idea, like you know, how it compares to wheat oh, or corn. Yes, yes, yes. It's higher than wheat. Eighteen percent. There mm. is eighteen percent protein, and it is rich on iron, mineral, and vitamins. Also, it is gluten free. Because it's gluten-free makes a super food. It is going to revolutionize the food industry. It already does. That is a big, big, big thing in the United States. Yes, yes, yes. Big thing. You know, my customers, not only the Ethiopian or East African in the diaspora, but also uh, my American fellow, uh, this because it's gluten-free, uh, you know, the gluten people, they have celiac. Uh, they, celiac doesn't have any medicine. All you got to do is eat uh, gluten-free. So with Steph, anybody can eat, uh, whether you have celiac or not celiac. It's a food for everybody. Now, you were showing it to me just before the, the show today, and it's it's dark. It's darker than some of the grains I've seen, at least. Yes, are, yes, and, yes. And it's very, like, hard, like little teeny little pellets, I'd say. Yes. Um, how do you prepare it? Oh, see, there is variety. There is 300 species of teff, but right now, uh, the brown, the ivory, and white. Oh. Yes, otherwise, uh, there are 300 species of teff. So teff is very, very small, tiny. You can put 150 grain in your fingernail. So it's hard to bleach it. It is packed with nutrition. Yeah. So... We grinded it into a flour, and then anything you can do with, with barley uh, or with wheat, you can substitute with teff. Of course, it is, uh, the bran is hard, hard to bleach, so it, it makes it uh, hard for insect to, to eat it. Good. Well, that's good, right? Yeah. Yes, it is good. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Tesfa. Thanks for coming in and joining us. That's Tesfa Drar. He is founder of Salam Foods based in Minnesota. Thank you.
Esther Lynch, Confederal Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation, was forced to leave Tunisia after addressing a rally organized by Tunisia's powerful UGTT trade union to protest President Kais Saeed's failed policies. Lynch told the crowd that she had come to convey a message of support from 45 million European trade unionists and called for the immediate release of detained union officials. Coordinated arrest by Saeed's government has raised fears of a wider crackdown on dissent and prompted the UN Human Rights Office to also call for the detainees to be freed. Mangi Daoudi, president of the Tunisian United Network, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi the further damage that the expulsion of Lynch could do to Saeed's international reputation. As if Kai Saeed's reputation needs any more damage. Kai Saeed, when he ran back in 2019 for office, and he ran as a person coming from outside the system, not being part of any political party or family, as we say in Tunisia. So he was considered a plus when he was from outside the system. And indeed, many voted for him thinking he would bring fresh ideas and think from outside the box. But now we see that this lack of knowledge and lack of not knowing how the, the state functions, this became a very, you know, Achilles heel for Kai Saeed. It's, it's, a, it's a big weakness for him, or how diplomacy even is carried out. So when we see Kai Saeed showing little regard for international institutions, he, a lot of the international friends of Tunisia stayed away from him, and now he takes on one of the major labor unions in Europe. This is an organization that has more than 40 million members, and and by him showing disrespect for the secretary general of the labor union and asking her to leave the country within 24 hours, this is definitely going to uh, make a lot of the labor unions and a lot of similar NGOs who do have say and sway with a lot of members of the European Union. He's going to make enemies out of, of these folks. Thousands of members of Tunisia's powerful labor union took to the streets of eight cities on Saturday to protest against President Qais Saeed's policies, accusing him of trying to stifle basic freedoms, including union rights. What's your take on that? If we look back on how the GTT dealt with uh, the, the power grab of Qais Saeed or the coup since July 2021, they initially supported the move and they said that they agreed with his diagnosis that the economy was not doing well, that the, a lot of the institutions, including the parliament, was not functioning well. That's their narrative. They agreed with Kai Saeed. But then when they saw that he mishandled and mismanaged the economy and did not offer any real solutions and started seeking aggressively this IMF loan and showed the willingness to call for reducing the labor numbers, selling some of the public companies, talking about reducing the subsidies on the essential goods. So now we see them changing their rhetoric against him, criticizing his government, actually calling even for the resignation of the government and replacing it with other competent ministers. And now, in the last few weeks, the UGTT started calling for a national dialogue and, and issued some kind of a framework how the dialogue should go and which tracks political, economical, and social. All of this, Kaisis Ayat did not like and we saw that he, instead of negotiating with
with them. He adopted the same method that he used against political parties and started intimidating them by arresting some of their leaders, accusing them of sabotaging the economy. And the UGTT had no other way but to start rallying their workforce and start calling them to rally again, you know, on all these cities and with the hope that that would send a strong message to Qais Sayyid that they don't like where the country is going, they don't like the way he's handling the economy and that they are willing to maybe escalate this fight. Would that labor escalation force a dialogue in Tunisia or more confrontation? That depends on how Qais Sayyid is going to respond to these latest rallies that we saw in various cities from the south to the coastal cities in this past weekend and other cities and now they are calling for a kind of national march on uh, March 4th this coming weekend. Is Qais Sayyid going to preemptively go after these UGTT leaders before this march or is he going to wait and see what's the size and what are the slogans that the UGTT is going to raise for him to make his move? All indications so far from what we have seen how Qais Sayyid has dealt with his opposition is he only has one way, and that is to escalate things. And like just like he started arresting members of the opposition, and now during the last few weekends, he even escalated that. The numbers have gone up. He went after everybody from across the board, from a Nahda to all the way to the, the, the leftist nationalist. And now he's probably going to do the same thing with the UGDT. That was Mange Daoudi, president of the Tunisian United Network, speaking with my colleague Mohamed El Shnawi. And that wraps it up for this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Carol Van Dam in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mukbil Yabro, and our engineer, Shogun Chong, thanks for tuning in to The Voice of America. Mm-hmm.